Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today we speak with civil society scholar Howard Husick about why formative norms rather than material provisions are so central or ought to be so central to what civil society does. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. I am your host, Jeremy Beer. And today, we are fortunate to have with us someone who thinks about and studies civil society for a living in Howard Husick, Senior Executive Fellow at the Philanthropy Roundtable, uh, also Adjunct Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Howard, um, before he came to the Philanthropy Roundtable uh, just a couple of years ago, was with the Manhattan Institute from 2006 to 2019, uh, where he served as Vice President for Research and Publications. He is a contributing editor to City Journal, which is published by the Manhattan Institute and is a wonderful periodical uh, if you are interested in uh, issues related to urbanism. Uh, in particular. Uh, and uh, most importantly, Howard is the author of Who Killed Civil Society? The Rise of Big Government and Decline of Bourgeois Norms, which came out in fall 2019 and which we will be talking a lot about today. Uh, before he got to uh, the Manhattan Institute, Howard was at the Harvard uh, University Kennedy School of Government. Uh, before that, he was... Um, uh, well, I should say simultaneously, he was a fellow at the Hauser Center on Nonprofit Organizations um, at uh, Harvard, uh, and um, writings appeared in many, many places, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Chronicle of Philanthropy. Um, as I say, an actual expert and scholar of civil society. So welcome, Howard. Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Um so you wrote a very good book, uh, as I was just telling you before we kind of started recording, uh, Who Killed Civil Society? Uh, it just came out in 2019. Um, so let's just start there. The title inspires uh, the question, uh, is civil society dead? <laughs> and if so, who killed it? Uh, well, American civil society is uh, relatively thriving. It's not as powerful as it used to be. Uh, so the title is a bit of hyperbole, but that <laughs> Something one engages in. Uh, That's what publishers do. They, they, they make us engage in hyperbole a little bit. But uh, there's something to that. <laughs> but but our, our, the strength of our civil society has ebbed as the, the breadth and character of our government has expanded. I think that's the, the theme of the book. Uh, it, it's not an anti-government book. There are many things the government uh, does well and needs to do well. We're certainly experiencing that currently in the pandemic. But there are also things that government probably uh, definitely does not do well, and by undertaking them has undermined civil society. Yeah, and you make that point very clear in the book that it's certainly not some sort of um, simplistic anti-government or anti-state um, uh, argument. Uh, but one of the key distinctions you make um, is between norms and material provision. Um, can you talk about that distinction and, and, and talk about um, – why norms, you, you would argue, are, are more important for 
individual flourishing uh, than than material provisions are just on their own. Yeah, norms are really important. And, you know, there, there's a lot of discussion about, well, if we have a program that helps people do A or B or succeed in such a way, uh, then, well, how do we bring that to scale? We're always thinking about scale. And that leads us, well, we should have the government do that because only the government can bring things to scale. And it was really reflecting on that that prompted me to write this book because as I reflected, I came to the conclusion or the insight, I would say pretentiously, that uh, only norms can bring good things to scale. So, for instance, uh, I'll just take a very mundane example. Uh, we pay our taxes in the United States. The government has an enforcement mechanism uh, that uh, audits our taxes if we don't pay. But basically, Americans adhere to a norm of honesty about how we proceed. And so there's no need for a huge government enforcement budget because Americans pay their taxes. There are many countries in which this is not the case, by the way. But that's our norm is to pay. I, I, I once uh, met the um, uh, former mayor of uh, Seattle, Washington, who told me a story about uh, hiring a police chief. And he hired, he was interviewing a police chief who had come from uh, quite far away in the East Coast. And he'd woken up at his hotel at three o'clock in the morning, as people with jet lag do. And he looked out onto the street. And there he saw a red light and he saw a resident of Seattle. This was a long time ago, mind you, who was waiting for the light to change or crossing the street at three o'clock in the morning. There's a norm, or there was a norm at that time not to cross the street against the light. Norms are powerful. There used to be a strong norm in America not to have children before one got married. We have programs, we've tried programs to encourage, uh, discourage teenage parenthood, but there's nothing as successful as the norm don't get don't have children before you get married. And we that's a particular norm that we've lost to our great detriment. So those are examples of norms and how powerful they can be. So a norm would be in your um, in your way of using it, uh, let me see if this is I have this essentially correct. An internalized and socially enforced rule of behavior. Is that essentially what we're talking about here? Yeah, socially enforced, reinforced. Uh, yeah, a way of of, of uh, conducting ourselves that is typical of what goes on in the society. There, there are good norms and bad norms. Right? So you, you can have, uh, there are plenty of societies in which people don't stop at red lights. And I've tried to drive in some of those places and it's really crazy. But, but, yeah, you got, you got it essentially right. That's a, it's a very precise definition. Thank you. Well, and then, but then you, of course, you you don't just say decline of norms. You say decline of bourgeois norms. And so, so presumably, bourgeois norms are, uh, in your argument, um, good good norms. They're good for society. They're good for individuals. What 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 you know? What are those? What are those norms? You know, are there are four or five that are the most important that have um, or have suffered the most decline that we need to be most concerned about. 
Well, in, in the book, I tell the story uh, of my father who was raised in South Philadelphia in the Depression. He was an orphan starting age 10. And his life was really saved by a civil society organization called the Juvenile Aid Society of Philadelphia. And these were volunteer women of means who took it upon themselves to find foster homes for uh, uh, orphans living in poverty, uh, pay the foster families out of their own funds, and to visit them on a regular basis. And uh, my father had a, a friendly and regular visitor named Mrs. Sternberger. She drove up in her chauffeured black Cadillac to his uh, row house above a uh, apartment above a bar- barbershop in South Philadelphia. And she had a list of virtues that it was her duty, according to the Juvenile Aid Society, to expose my father to virtues like honesty, integrity, deferring gratification, giving to charity when he got to be an adult. Uh, uh, So this organization, those are the bourgeois norms. Bourgeois norms means improving yourself, saving, putting off for tomorrow so you can improve yourself over time, not wanting instant gratification, good manners. That was one of the things that she encouraged. Good manners at all times. Good manners may sound like a, you know, some kind of a luxury, but anybody who who tries to uh, take the subway in New York City knows that, say, excuse me, and it matters. Societies that say, excuse me, that say, please and thank you, get along with each other better. That's the story of Japan. So norms were being encouraged, and those bourgeois norms, call them middle-class norms, that built the work ethic in the United States and other developed countries were what he was exposed to and what I fear have ebbed away. It, it is Okay, maybe you can help us solve this riddle because, um, as other scholars have pointed out, um, these are norms by which our uh, most educated and uh, prosperous classes continue to live uh, themselves. But they, to talk about them as something that should be imparted uh, to um, the rest of society, sort of down the socioeconomic uh, chain, if you will, uh, or that should be insisted upon, um, that's, that's extraordinarily out of favor. <laughs> Bourgeois norms is not something that our elites are um, you're going on and on about, about how important they are. Why, why has that confidence been lost, uh, even by a class that continues to live by such norms themselves? Yeah, it's it's a great question and a a great observation. And just for some historical context, uh, this did not used to be the case, right? So uh, the book is a series of historical portraits of key figures in building American civil society and key figures in, I guess one would say, building government at the expense of, of, uh, of civil society. And, uh, you know, one of my, the, the heroes of the book is uh, 
is Jane Addams, who was the leader of the settlement house movement in the late 19th, early 20th century. And I don't know how many Americans are even familiar anymore with the settlement house movement, but it was a movement in which middle and upper middle class people settled, literally went to live in poor neighborhoods and created these institutions like Hull House, like the Henry Street Settlement in New York, many others, hundreds across the country. There was no government money involved, all local, local boards of directors. And what did they do? First of all, they took it upon themselves to teach English to immigrants. They didn't think, well, let, let's have signs in multiple languages. No, they said, the best way to get ahead in this country is if you learn English, and we're going to make it possible for you to learn. And by the way, we want you to become a citizen. Do what it takes to pass the citizenship test. And by the way, we want to expand your horizons and expose you to the arts and literature. And by the way, this same movement was associated with the Pledge of Allegiance. The founding fathers didn't write the Pledge of Allegiance. It didn't come into existence until this great immigrant wave of the late 19th century. So American elites of that time had a tremendous sense of confidence about the virtues of America. And their idea was to include newcomers in it, not to defer to other values and say, well, yeah, the way you live is pretty good too. No, uh, when, when people were throwing garbage uh, out on out their windows in the west side of Chicago near where Jane Addams was, she says, no, no garbage out the windows. This is not rural somewhere. She had no confusion about that count. Uh, why did that confidence ebb? Uh, there, there arose a sense that we should not be judgmental about other cultures. And in the process, we, as you point out, began to practice, but not to preach. You know, and as my colleague Kay Heimowitz uh, from the Manhattan Institute has pointed out many times, if you look at the entering classes of Ivy League schools, huge percentages come from intact two-parent families. As uh, is Isabel, uh, uh, as Isabel Sawhill and uh, Ron Haskins from the Brookings Institution have pointed out. There is a success formula one can follow in life, graduate high school, defer children until marriage and work. And they you won't call, work. Uh, you won't called, called success sequence, right? The How success is, sequence, that's right, which yeah. is a new restatement of these bourgeois norms. Mm -hmm. So there's some hope that it's returning to fashion, but it's, it's, um, it's an uphill struggle, as you point out. Well, I'm going to put a pin in this because when we come back from our break, I want to get on to Jeffrey Canada and uh, because it's going to relate to this, what you were just talking about. So I'm, I'm just reminding myself here as I come back to this when we talk about him. But let me, let me ask you about another aspect of your argument then. So you say, and you're very, you're very um, strong about this, that only civil society rather than the government can impart norms. Um, do you mean, what do you mean by that exactly? Do you mean literally only can? Do you mean it can only, only civil society can impart them well or without uh, undue uh, civic controversy? Uh, um, or do you, 
yeah, what exactly, like, why? <laughs> why can only civil society impart norms rather than the government? Well, I think as Americans, we wouldn't want the government to be in the norm imparting business. We think of government as being a provider of services. But um, one, one, I guess, an example, the exception that proves the point, uh, 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 my friend Robert Doerr, who is now kind of my one of my bosses, he's the president of the American Enterprise Institute, but he used to be the head of the Human Resource Administration in New York City and did a fantastic job reducing welfare caseloads and creating a publicity campaign that encouraged people to work by pointing out that even if you get certain benefits, you do better if you work. But Robert was very strong on the problems that uh, teenage mothers and their children have in life. And he, with the approval and the support of uh, then Mayor Michael Bloomberg of New York, uh, uh, instigated a multimedia campaign to discourage teenage pregnancy, subway posters, television, public service uh, advertisements, pointing out from the point of view of the childhood, do you know, as if it were speaking to its mother, that you're putting me in a position where it's much more likely that I'll go to prison, much more likely that I'll be a drug addict because there's no only one parent in the home. And those are, that's the data. Well, the pushback against this was enormous, just enormous. It may sound unobjectionable to those who agree with the premise, but the pushback was enormous by The New York Times, by all sorts of uh of observers, because they said this is not the government's business to tell people how to live their lives. And uh, even if you go back to uh, Nancy Reagan, just say no to drugs, she was satirized for that. Seemed she was right, but she was satirized. So yeah. difficult for, for government to be accepted as a promoter of norms, whereas Mothers Against Drunk Driving, a very effective norm-setting organization. Nobody said, well, who are these mothers? What gives them the right? They had enormous influence. And they created, out of whole cloth, a norm-setting organization. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Um, it does strike me that the situation is such today that any group that um seem to have sort of a very visible influence uh, who amounts a similar campaign in the New York subway system for instance even a private civil society group would also have the New York Times and everybody else up in arms <laughs> about what they were saying um it's sort of not accepted that anybody can um promote certain uh um values or virtues uh considered to be uh you know, traditional or old fashioned, you know, associated with sort of old patterns of authority, hierarchy. Today, they would say whiteness, you know, you'd throw in sort of a, a racial component. Um, it, it seems like it's, we not just don't want the government doing it, but we want anybody doing that now. Well, in, in, a, in a high profile, uh, multi-million dollar way, perhaps, but it happens every day in our society. It happens, in fact, uh, if you read this terrific book called Upon This Rock, it's the story of the Reverend Johnny Ray Youngblood in uh, in East Brooklyn and about his partnership with a housing developer uh, to build homes for, for working class black people in Brooklyn. 
but also his effort to recruit men into the black church and to prepare them for what he considered to be uh, traditional manhood by marrying and 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 being part of the lives of, of the their children and the mothers of their children. There are people like that out there every day. They don't have million dollar ad campaigns, but civil society with a variety of values is operating, is operating. There are, there are other churches, of course, that say what, what we must be able to be open to, to gay clergy. And that's, that's a different civil society norm. So there, there's competition amongst norms, but norms are certainly being promoted and set uh, and to a certain extent below the radar. Are you concerned, though, that bourgeois norms in particular are um, considered kind of radioactive uh, to, to preach that anyway? Uh, um, you know, and that will eventually seep down so that there are even fewer Johnny Ray Youngbloods um, doing that kind of uh, spreading that sort of message, a pro bourgeois norms message. I am concerned about it. That's why I wrote the book to point <laughs> it out and to point out that. When government gets involved to have a program to encourage, uh, to discourage teenage pregnancy, for instance, they typically uh, include only teenage mothers. Who else would you include? They try to fix the problem as opposed to prevent the problem. It's what I call the reformative rather than the formative, which is actually a phrase that I stole from uh, 19th century reformer named Charles Loring Brace, who started the Children's Aid Society to take newsboys off the street of New York and set them on a good path in life. But government programs tend to respond to problems. We, we, we know that as a matter of common sense. The government doesn't start a program if nothing's wrong. Right. And so by focusing on what's wrong, it almost reinforces the existence of that problem. And in fact, you have a lot of people whose professional lives are tied up in fixing that problem and the ongoingness of that problem. Right. Yeah. Question, yeah. Am, I, am I concerned that, that bourgeois norms are fading? Uh, yes, I am. At the same time, you know, at the same time, I, I'm, I'm mindful of some of the civil society groups that I meet. Uh, you know, I came in touch with one called um, English is a Second Language of Northern Nevada. And it's a group of volunteer English tutors who, in the pre-pandemic era, anyhow, would go to the homes of immigrants who really wanted to learn English. And they're all, you know, some of them legal, some of them not so legal. They're working mm-hmm. night shift at the casinos in Reno. Mm-hmm. They want to get ahead and they know that improving their skills gets them there. Well, they understand whether it's preached uh, by elites or not, that bourgeois norms are helpful. So you never can tell. I want to come right back, Howard, after the break and have you tell us a little bit more about the uh, groups like that one that you've had seen in your uh, career. They're doing a, um, a particularly um, good and effective job uh, at their missions. We'll be right back with uh, Howard Husick. All right. 
right. Hey, time for some practical advice. Happy to have with us today my colleague Scott Rubush. How you doing, Scott? I'm good. How are you doing, Jeremy? Scott is a managing consultant at American Philanthropic. Uh, I've been working with him for a long time, and he's a, a wonderful writer, a wonderful uh, craftsman when it comes to uh, persuasive messaging, and that's what we are going to talk about today. So, Scott, um, one thing I think we run into a lot uh, when we're working with um, our nonprofit clients is getting them to um, uh, to be more persuasive in their messaging. Maybe that's the <laughs> the way to put this. Uh, to be to be compelling and to be persuasive, you can't be milk toast, right? right. You got to be strong. Exactly. So, t- tell us how that works, and how do you how do you get to that point where your 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 messaging is is really strong? Yeah, you raise a great point. I think a lot of a lot of clients that I work with tend to be um, kind of uh, overly formal, or they tend to be kind of overly kind of rational, kind of in their their um, in their messaging, and they you know they just see it as this very kind of linear kind of in their minds it all makes sense, but you've got to really kind of like you know kind of up the intensity and really kind of make it clear for people. Um, and so yeah, kind of I would say like giving your 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 fundraising appeals more of a an emotional kind of drive and kind of really kind of making the case in, a, in an urgent kind of way is really kind of a key kind of dimension to, uh, to anything you put yeah, out there. Logic yeah. chains are not, are not what drive people to give, you know, like sort of impeccable right. logic is not what yeah. you tell the checkbook, but yeah, theories of change. Yeah. None of that. It's <laughs> please don't talk about your theory of change in your, in your no. raising fields. Okay. What Especially else? Not direct mail. What else would you say? How do you do that? How do you create urgency? I think you've just got to tell, like, you know, you've got, you can't be afraid to just tell the full story of kind of the, the emotional impact of what you're doing. And that can be, you know, whether you're, if you're in maybe public policy, that could be just telling like, hey, like people are getting hurt. The bad guys are on the other side of this issue trying to like, mm-hmm. you know, kind of starve children or they're, you know, kind of, you know, make it kind of, I, you've got to, I guess like fundamentally what you've got to do is really kind of appeal to the lizard kind of brain, the reptilian kind of rational animal that lives within everyone. Um, and that's really kind of where decisions get made. We're, uh, we are human beings are post hoc decision makers. Uh, people decide on a gut, emotional, subconscious level, and then their rational brain does the kind of, you know, kind of makes them feel good about that decision. It doesn't work the other way around. People don't like in most situations. Yeah, it's so it's so important. Yeah, it's so important. It's not um, you you if you you need to read Hume. Everybody needs to go back and read David Hume. Basically, right? Yeah, it's it's, uh, <laughs> and it doesn't mean we can't uh, reason um, based on um, more pure logic, but we don't often do it that way. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, the point. yeah. The book I love is uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, and he describes this. You know, the brain is having two levels. There's system one, system two. System one is subconscious, gut level concerned with survival because really we're like we're wired for survival rather than being right and winning debates right survival kind of from an evolutionary standpoint was like the kind of imperative um so that's like the much stronger kind of aspect of our brain so that's something you've always got to keep in mind people are going to make decisions based on kind of these you know deeply kind of emotional kind of things um and then their kind of system two is the more logical rational things that weighs side of the brain that weighs things after the fact, after you've kind of, well, does that really, I made this decision, does it, or maybe kind of, I've come to this conclusion, does that really make sense? And then that's, there's sort of a sorting mechanism. You can kind of override system one, but it's, it's system one is kind of the one that just snap, um, you know, makes the decision. 
And um, <laughs> unless you're really kind of, unless you boot up the, the, the other side of your brain to really kind of weigh things, it's just going to, that, the, the subconscious will really kind of drive decisions. And that, and that goes for funding appeals. So having a good kind of emotional kind of uh, appeal to people's system one, if you will, um, is really a key dimension to everything. I love it. Yeah. I mean, you, uh, as much as we want to get people to system two, if you don't engage them at system one, you're not going to yeah. get anywhere. So yeah. good advice, Scott. I appreciate it. So thank Thanks for being with us. All right. Thank you. All right. We are back with Howard Husick. Uh, of uh, the Philanthropy Roundtable, where he is Senior Executive Fellow. Uh, Howard, at your uh, previous stop at the Manhattan Institute, um, I believe you were involved in uh, sort of identifying around the country civil society groups that were doing the best work uh, that people ought to you know, know about. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, what you were looking for? What you, were there things you found that really surprised you, you know, that people were, were doing that were just, just tremendous? Um, or that particularly moved you, or, or even characteristics that seem to kind of tie together the most successful groups. Can, can you just speak speak to uh, that effort? Yeah, well, we, we called these uh, the Civil Society Awards. Uh, in previous years, we'd called them the Social Entrepreneurship Awards. A lot of people relate to that, that nomenclature. Uh, organizations, you know, really started out of whole cloth by people with some idea about something they thought was not being done and that they could take it upon themselves to do it. And they are entrepreneurs. It's just like Jeff Bezos thought there ought to be an everything store, and now there is. But um, I, I was, you know, it's silly to say one is blown away, but every year I would be blown away by some of the things that I would find out about. Um so uh, I'll pay tribute here to a woman who just who, who just passed away from uh, the COVID uh, pandemic. Her name was uh, Alice Ely Chapman, and she was the heir to a major newspaper fortune. Grew up in Connecticut. She was a debutante. She was a black sheep in the family, though. She married a coal miner from southern Ohio. And they lived many years doing modest jobs in the Philadelphia area, but then they got to retirement age and uh, they decided they'd move back to her husband's home area in, it's really Appalachian, Ohio. And uh, around the same time, Alice came into her family fortune, which was still substantial. And she was living in Marietta, Ohio, very interesting place on the Ohio River. Uh, General Lafayette visited it at, on one of his post-Revolutionary War tours, founded by New Englanders. So in a way, she was right at home. But she had the idea. She saw all these a Appalachian poor white kids really struggling from families where there was a lot of drug use. Uh, school system was bad. She decided not only was she going to start a rigorous after-school tutoring program, she was going to personally buy and renovate an abandoned school and serve hundreds of kids and work with the local college to have student teachers 
put a board of local people together, get support from the community foundation. But it was, she was really the Melinda Gates of this small place using so much of her own personal money. And her idea was really good study habits. That's what you have to learn, kids. If the teach, if you miss your homework, I don't care. She literally told this to me. I don't care if the teacher forgot to hand out the assignment. It was your job to ask her for the assignment. Can you imagine that? I call her the Connecticut Yankee in Appalachia. Yeah. Well, you're taking away a time-honored excuse, uh, Mrs. That's Chapman. right. That's right. <laughs> and literally, people's young people, so many young people's lives were touched by this woman, and the the school became the headquarters for the Boy Scouts in the area, and, and the Girl Scouts, and for uh, for a theater troupe and a nature exhibit about the Ohio River. It, so much. One woman did this and was willing to basically spend her fortune doing it. And the community is now continuing it. She just died in December, Alice. Uh, so I, I was very, very touched by by meeting her. Uh, but, you know, young people are doing this stuff, too. So uh, th- there's a group called uh, Invisible Friends in, in New York that spontaneously uh, emerged in the early weeks after the lockdown, pandemic lockdown in March, when one person posted on Facebook, I see that these elderly people are shut in and can't get groceries. Anybody want to help me deliver? Within weeks, there were 10,000 people. There was a formal organization with a 501c3 called Invisible Friends, and it still exists. And they're delivering groceries to literally thousands of people. And they've expanded. They're going to keep doing it even after the pandemic, if we ever get there, uh, to help people who can't get to food pantries get their food from the food pantries. And these are all millennials, you know, it, you know young people who set this in motion. So it's happening all the time in America. Civil society is uh, reinvigorating itself and touching people's lives. That the magic of it all, <laughs> um, if you try to dissect it, it seems to be tied to a couple of things. Uh, so tell me what you think. Uh, sort of kind of a local, uh, kind of a localism seems to be sort of key to the magic, at least uh, for a while. Certainly, both of the um, examples you just gave, especially the one in Marietta, Ohio, and the sort of spontaneity, unplanned, bottom up um, sort of way that these things come together. Uh, would, would you say those things are kind of key to, or tend to be keys to effective work in the civil society sphere? Yeah, I think localism is absolutely key. I think we've become reflexively used to the idea that some big initiative from Washington can fix anything in our lives. And we know not only do truly local problems local programs, local organizations do good work because they're so in touch with the specific needs, mm-hmm. right? It's not one size, yeah. it's all. But even beyond that, the very formation and ongoing operations of these organizations with extensive use of volunteers, local fundraising, that is an end in itself. It creates social fabric, mm-hmm. right? So that, what's, Great point. 
I, I got to meet you, Jeremy, when we were doing the, the food deliveries together. But, you know, you, you want to do this other thing that I was talking about? It's, it's a business opportunity. Oh, you know how you can help my mother get a vaccine? That is so great. Right. So all sorts of connections are forged because these things are so local. So we shouldn't just look to results and measure results. A lot of philanthropists say, what, what, right. what, are, the, right. what are the metrics? Mm-hmm. Well, to a certain extent, civil society is its own reward. That's a great point. And it's one that we don't make enough. But as long as the end for which you are associating is not illegal, immoral, or unethical, <laughs> <laughs> um, your associating is a great good in and of itself. For, for all of us, not just for you who participate in it, but as you say, kind of, you're weaving together a, a tighter social fabric uh, simply by making that kind of connection. Yeah, well, uh, the, the social scientist Robert Putnam made his name even before his, his uh, best-selling book, Bowling Alone, about anomia in American society, about civil society in Northern Italy. And he went and really looked closely at civil society in Northern Italy and found there was a correlation between social trust and the extent of choral society participation in Northern Italy. And anybody who's been to Italy knows there's a big difference between Northern and Southern Italy because of the much higher levels of social trust compared to the honor culture of Southern Italy. And, and Bob Putnam saw it as part and parcel of a healthy civil society. I don't know if you've looked at this at all in your work, Howard, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, you don't talk about it in the book necessarily, but you you just you're talking about social trust and its correlation with um, well, uh, participation together in, in sort of uh, civil society groups, even pre-pandemic. Um, the sort of digital uh, colonization of our our minds and lives. Um, it seem, seems to be you know, reducing our you know, physical um, uh, uh, things <laughs> that are done together or uh, you know, replacing uh, physical things in certain ways. And it doesn't seem as if, <laughs> anecdotally speaking, uh, social trust is exactly built up by you know, um, online groups and you know, social media and so forth. Um, what, is, what kind of danger is it not posed by government, but by digital our digital lives, a new, this, this way we live now to civil society? Yeah. I don't think anybody knows the answer. Um, there's a woman at MIT, Sherry Turkle, who many years ago wrote a groundbreaking, path-breaking book called The Second Self about how technology changes our consciousness. She went back to the advent of the clock in the Babylonian era. And suddenly you saw days in a different way. And that's certainly true. Uh, you said occupies our mind. It does. It, it it really does. And I always try to be optimistic. And I think that eventually we're going to get used to that and realize that that um, doing something together in in you know synchronously in face to face just has a dimension that can't be captured. You know, and we've also mm-hmm. seen, I mean, I'm just, just going to be cliched for me to say that we have all this hate and intimidation that comes right. up. People can be anonymous. And when you're actually meeting somebody, you can't be anonymous. And you don't tend to hate them as much, even if they have different views than you. It's amazing. You, uh, you, you really don't. You realize that you, you, you sense 
the the nuance in people. Right. Or the pain that they may be suffering or where they're coming from and why and all that sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Or you should. Or you should. You're right. Not everybody, but it's easier to do uh, than it is in, in an online setting alone. Um, well, let me uh, – let's take, take you back to the book, um, which is great. Uh, I, I highly recommend it uh, to – uh, anyone who's interested in civil society, and particularly if you're interested sort of in the history of civil society, because uh, Howard, you give really nice portraits of people like Charles Loring Brace and Jane Addams, whom you've mentioned, uh, Mary Richmond, Grace Abbott, uh, Wilbur Cohen, whom you haven't mentioned yet, um, all of whom play a role in the, in the his- historiography that you give us in terms of sort of this arc away from independent civil society towards something that's a little bit more uh, government focused, but you end with uh, a discussion of a man named Jeffrey Canada, who invented something called the Harlem Children's Zone. Uh, and so, I'd like to just take some time to talk about him because it seems to me that his entire approach to um, uh, um, working in uh, uh, poorer uh, African American communities uh, is diametrically opposed to what his um, uh, would be the sort of elite you know, a politically correct way of doing it today. Uh, so what can you tell us about Canada and what he's done in Harlem um, and how it's different? Yeah. J- Jeff Canada, by the way, went through a, a phase of being a hero that everybody liked that uh, President mm-hmm. Obama celebrated covering <laughs> yeah. the New York Times magazine. He's, he's kind of faded from public consciousness a little bit, but uh, he was literally a community organizer in Harlem. And he said, what would it take for kids here to do well. And he didn't have any illusions about defunding the police. Uh, his approach was what he eventually came to call a cradle to college approach. And by the way, it was philanthropically supported to the tunes of a, a lot of money, a lot of money from, from big New York philanthropist hedge fund guys who are so vilified these days. But the Children's Zone is a 124 block, square block area of central Harlem uh, with a charter school in the middle of it and tutoring after school programs for kids in the public schools and something called a baby college where young parents and even young parents before the child is born are exposed to the best child rearing practices. They're all predicated on the idea of uh, of bourgeois norms, and, and Jeff Canada would not shy away from that term. Uh, one of the great stories he tells, he was raised in, in the Bronx himself. He wrote a terrific early autobiography called Fist, Stick, and Knife. I really recommend it, and it's a harrowing account of growing up on the streets of the Bronx, and somebody as brainy as Jeff Canada having to learn how to act tough all the time only because he was sent to live with his grandparents on Long Island did he get to go to a, a better public school. And uh, uh, although he's not that harsh on the New York public schools of that era, he had there was a gifted program, he was in it. Uh, uh, the neighborhood was the hard part for him. And uh, uh, eventually he gets a, a scholarship to go to Bowdoin College. And he, and he has this insight. He looks around and says, there are no police here, but there's no crime either. Why is that? And he starts to work backwards from that. And in that long working back, he gets into the Harlem Children's Zone, which is to impart norms. So at the 
at the high school, you wear uniforms. Got to wear uniforms. Rap stars. This is one of my favorite stories. Big time rap stars with big time bling would come to Jeff Kennedy because he's a famous guy and say, we want to give you a lot of money for your school. We want to tour the school. He said, I'm sorry, you may not come into my school. You are not the kind of hero I want my kids to look up. I want them to aspire to the full range of jobs and professions, not to think it's either basketball, bling, or bust. And so it, it was philanthropy to support his idea, charter schools, which combine state funding but are steered by their own visionary leaders, and original programs like the Baby College that he combined to try to transform what the social norms of central Harlem. And, you know, not everything is numbers. And we, we won't know for decades how his kids did. But so far, the results on standardized tests and that sort of thing are very positive. It, it's really um, it's really amazing. You say how sort of something like that uh, approach was celebrated all sides of the political spectrum uh, just a short time ago, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and now, uh, you know, one would think that Bowdoin College might, you know, disown uh, <laughs> Jeff Canada for such views, you know, uh, when we're, uh, it, it seems that, um, it, so is it the case, Howard, that the complaining, it seems to me, here's one way to put this, is that complaining about bourgeois norms is itself a bourgeois luxury, that uh, those who have to live without them are not so quick to disdain them. That really puts it well, you know. Uh, V.S. Naipaul once wrote about that in, the con- in his great book, Abandon the River, about folk singers who can protest because they take for granted their safety. You couldn't do that in an Africa c- country run by a big man. And yes, it's the, it's the security and the, the desire to signal one's own virtue, which can make it seem costless, costless to demean, de-emphasize the bourgeois norms, you know, what, what, what Max Weber once called the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, deferred gratification. If you're living in a place where crime is high, you don't want the police defunded. You want people to keep their nose clean, to work hard and play by the rules, as Bill Clinton said, because you understand that's what makes your your life okay and lets you aspire for your children. So, Howard, let us uh, let me just end with this. Um, and I don't know if, that you'll have necessarily – I don't expect you to have any uh, – <laughs> um, a, a, a canned answer or solution uh, that I'm about to ask you about. But it seems the predicament is something like this. Uh, if we need a renaissance of civil society, as you, as you write, uh, and civil society is itself dependent on uh, bourgeois norms, the imparting of formative bourgeois norms um, to, um, to, to everyone, uh, but especially those who are on the margins of society. Uh, yet at the same time, uh, the state and nearly every powerful institution uh, in our world um, uh, is, is is reluctant to or or, or hostile to <laughs> um, reluctant to impart or at least ho- or hostile to the very idea of bourgeois norms. So that that's quite a predicament. How how, do, how does one how do we get out of that? 
Yeah, it, it is a predicament. And, and it's, you know, people thought a lot about the Trump voter and, and, and all of that business. But, you know, people sense, I think, that the culture has gotten away from them. The culture they thought worked has gotten away from them. And, you know, and it's not just things like sexual orientation. Those don't necessarily fight bourgeois norms. I, I don't think they do, you know. Can gay couples have bourgeois norms? Yeah, sure. Marriage is a bourgeois activity, so fine. Uh, but people just feel like, like I said, the culture got away from them. So my hope always is, you know, I, to me, thoughtful conservatism is a conversation with liberalism. And I'm just not giving up on talking to liberal elites and saying, think about the poor and the disadvantaged and what their lives are really like and what really will help them advance. You know, I, I started off my career as a writer and a journalist as a left winger. And I thought I was most concerned about the disadvantaged. I still think I am. And so that may be just a really, you know, crazy idea that somehow, you know, liberals are going to see some kind of light. But I, I, I'm going to keep trying on that. And I think we can't, can't give up talking to each other with that in mind. Talking's good. Uh, <laughs> I hope we can keep talking to each other as well. Um, Howard, where can people find you and your work uh, online? Yeah, well, the book is Who Killed Civil Society? The Rise of Big Government and Decline of Bourgeois Norms, published by Encounter Books. It's on Amazon, text or Kindle. Uh, my work is uh, uh, online at the uh, uh, both the Philanthropy Roundtable website the American Enterprise website, the Manhattan Institute website. Just look up Howard Husick, quote unquote, scholar. Sounds <laughs> That's what they they call me. I'm really just a writer guy. <laughs> no, you are a scholar and I appreciate your taking the time to be with us today, Howard. Well, it's really nice of you to have me, Jeremy. And uh, thanks for your for your good leading questions that help, help me uh, think things through. Thank you very much, Howard Husick. It's a senior executive fellow at the Philanthropy Roundtable. Appreciate it, and um, we'll see you next time.